Hello, I'm David Hardacre, and this is the Finzia podcast series on fintech, where digital disruption comes to financial services. We're exploring the big question. Will digital innovators kill the incumbents of banking and finance? Admittedly, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, no, surely not. I'm not going to be the, the leader of a, of a fintech innovation hub called Stone & Chalk. I mean, people are going to think it's a cafe or, a, you know, a, a magazine or something. That's Alex Scandura coming to terms with the name of Sydney's second fintech hub which opened for business in the second half of 2015. And um, when, I, when I heard it explained to me, it kind of it made a lot of sense. And, and the, the adage is this, that in, in financial services, things are, you know, it's quite unique in that there's certain things that are sacred. You know, the protection of, of customer data, adherence to regulation, and these things you can't touch. They're set in stone. But everything else is written in chalk. Stone and Chalk was established after a KPMG study commissioned by the Committee for Sydney showed there was a strong case for the city to develop a fintech industry. Financial services is already the single largest contributor to GDP. It's usually between 9 and 10%. So what we don't want to do is continue with the status quo and see a lot of the innovation happening around the world and a lot of the, the smart thinking and new business models that are emerging then hit our shores and totally disrupt us because you know, we've got a lot at stake, and that's just financial services. The hub was set up as a collaborative effort between venture capitalists, corporates and government to incubate and nurture fintech entrepreneurs and their startups. What we've got here in, in Sydney is a very large proportion of our financial services industry. But actually, on top of all that, and I feel much more importantly than all that, is Sydney's actually got the largest concentration of startups, right? And that's, that's really, really important. Because these are the guys and, and gals who are effectively creating the innovation, you know, and they're what is effectively going to reinvent financial services in the future. If you don't have that natural, almost organic rise of entrepreneurs and startups in a location, that can pretty much be your failure point. Stone and Chalk came into being after the Tyro FinTech Hub. The Tyro Hub reflects the spirit of its founder, Jos Stolman, who has a passion to disrupt the status quo and has taken on the established banks head-on. Stone and Chalk, on the other hand, enjoys the full backing of the leading names of Australia's finance industry. We've got 22 corporate partners now, and a large number of them are banks, um, such as you know, Macquarie, uh, Westpac, ANZ, and Suncorp. Others are a big superannuation and insurers like you know, AMP, IAG. But interestingly and importantly, we've also got um, technology partners. So you've got Thomson Reuters, we've got IBM, We've got Oracle and we've got, you know, Optus on board as well. And we've got key retailer like Woolworths, for example. And it's key that we've got a really good mix because increasingly we're seeing that the borderlines between industries are starting to blur and more and more organisations are going to go or be forced to go outside of their core to find new growth opportunities. And it's in these points of intersection between industry boundaries that I think some of the greatest opportunities lie. You know, you can imagine this isn't necessarily anything that's actually happening, but you can imagine, you know, a organisation like a mobile carrier like Optus, for example, that leverages its its customer uh, reach both locally here and internationally to start doing cross-border payments between various, you know, its own customer base and subscribers or starts to move into whole new areas of offers in a retail context, for example, and potentially partners with a Woolworths and, say, a number of fintech startups 
to achieve some of those whole new propositions and go to market. So there's quite a nice amount of cross-pollinization of you know, ideas, um, distribution channels, expertise that come into the mix, which are all you know, super valuable. And when you look at the banking and insurance partners, they are big, well-established companies. What's the motivation for them being on board? I think it's different for every organisation and every organisation is on a different point on the continuum. Some organisations are at the very early stage of mobile and digital adoption, automation, usage of potential um, artificial intelligence platforms, etc., and are on the very early, you know, beginning stage of that whole transformation journey. And you've got, you know, on the other end of that, organisations that have really invested heavily over the last few years on digital and mobile platforms. They're already using various you know, automated processes to remove manual handling, and they're really focusing on whole new growth opportunities. So each of them is approaching this from a very different perspective. Some are looking to learn. Some are looking to understand, you know, what really does fintech mean? Would it be right to say that if you look at some of those bigger companies that culturally it's difficult for them to evolve fast to cope with the new digital disruption and that the fintech hub is almost a way of outsourcing cultural change? Would that, would that be a fair way to put it? I don't think you can ever outsource cultural change, but um, you're absolutely right that large organisations can't move at this pace because in many cases their ability to have gotten to that point has been predicated on their ability to mitigate risk. So inherently, you've got a paradox such that what's currently your strength is also currently your weakness. Organisations need to have a split personality. Somehow they need to be able to operate the core of what their business is today, whereas another part of the organisation almost need to be, needs to be completely unshackled from all those things because that, that's now a, a, an anchor to their progress and transformation and be as nimble, as fast-moving, as risk-taking as possible. Alex Scandura's journey to Stone and Chalk began in an unusual place. Yeah, I I spent about eight years uh, in the Australian Army and uh, was a recon officer. It was pretty fun, lots of autonomy and, you know, middle of nowhere with a, a small bunch of guys. He has a degree in civil engineering and an MBA. He's worked for Lend Lease and Nokia and then finally Barclays Bank in London. They were looking to reinvent banking and they were looking for key people that you know, weren't from a banking background to bring whole new you know, fresh thinking to the organisation and to stretch the boundaries of what it meant to be a bank and also what it meant to be a customer of a bank. The lesson from the UK was that it is possible to change an old culture and to introduce innovation. So, you know, really what we're wanting to do is to help get on the front foot and I think it's you know probably unreasonable and unrealistic for us to talk about we're going to be the leaders in the world in all this stuff, but I absolutely believe that we can be the leaders in Asia, and that's really where we're trying to channel a lot of focus around. What do you consider to be the risk to the established finance industry, if I can put it that way? I mean, I've seen figures from Macquarie analysts are putting twenty-seven billion dollars. Mm. Uh, a $27 billion figure on, on the, the risks to the industry. How do you see it? We in Australia have, on a per customer basis, the most profitable banks in the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, um, I think it was according to either a Goldman Sachs or Bank of America report, 60 or so percent um, of bank profits come from net interest income, 
which is effectively the difference between you know, what they pay on savings and what they charge on, on borrowings. And if you look at other models like credit cards, for example, then you've got interchange fees, you've got the spread on um, interest in terms of uh, what they charge for, for unpaid balances. And it's a, it's a model largely based on that kind of a difference. What fintech is doing is coming in at a minute level of cost base in comparison to these large organisations. You've got organisations that are emerging now, pretty much attacking every single product area that big banks offer, you know, right from wealth management platforms to superannuation to um, credit cards or alternative um, credit models. Now you've got a various number of alternative finance players in terms of lending for SMEs, lending to consumers, um, whether it's peer-to-peer or, or balance sheet. And they're setting themselves up in a way to focus on initially particular verticals in terms of customer segments, but also verticals in terms of product offerings. Now, clearly they have a very low cost business model being completely digital in, in the majority of cases and something that's very easy to scale. The, the chances are that there's going to be the elephant being eaten you know, by a thousand different bites coming from a thousand different players that each of them start to grow. So in many respects, you can see how there can easily be this sense of safety, um, particularly where fintech is still a very new thing. But I suspect that a large number of these will work. And I guess the question becomes, as these successes become apparent, will the banks try to acquire them? Or will other technology giants that are looking to broaden their, from their core acquire them? and then take the playing field to a completely different level. I guess the banks would, and other big financial institutions, the insurance houses, would argue that they have this thing called trust built up over many, many years. The argument's often made that the millennials have a, have a new concept of what is, what is and can be trusted. I guess what remains to be seen is if that actually pitches forward as they grow older. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, I think um, not only that, but apathy as well plays a, a huge role. Um, you know, one thing that, that we recognised in the UK um, is that it can be such a pain in the neck to change your financial institution, right? If you've got mortgages or business loans or everything else, that actually, unless you're getting such a good deal, you're not going to take yourself through that pain, right? And th- what it means is people tend to stick with their banks for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years perhaps, right? And go through all kinds of issues that they're prepared to put up with because, you know, that's, that's better than the thought of changing organisations. Um, but what I think is likely to happen is um, these new fintech startups and their propositions are going to have a relatively easy and seamless um, onboarding process. So I would imagine that the millennials that already have grown up with social media, have grown up with digital, have grown up with mobile, that to them is second nature, that are already sharing pretty much too much on Facebook and Twitter and everything else, right, and Instagram, their sense of, I guess, boundaries is somewhat different to probably you and I. And that coupled with the ease and, the, and through digital, right, it's so much easier to shop around for what's out there, what's the best deal, what's, what's happening, that's the latest today, and switching from one thing to another. I suspect that the stickiness that we've you know, seen in financial services is going to be completely different um, in the next 10 or so years. Um, and it's interesting that you know, you've raised that because we've seen various reports that estimate that over the next two decades, there's going to be an additional 2 billion people in Asia that will enter the middle class and control the lion's share of, of the wealth in, in this region. And that's the millennials. And that can provide a completely different sense of what is the customer and what they want and therefore 
what is the business model that I need to be in. It is all about the culture. Stone and Chalk takes up one floor of the AMP building in Sydney. On the outside, it's another anonymous and slightly tired-looking office high-rise. Inside, though, it's another matter. Some of the old walls have been cleared away. There are open areas with workspaces dedicated to each startup, and spaces also for venture capitalists and mentors. And you really know you're somewhere different when you walk into the general get-together area. There are chalkboards with notices of events, as well as inspirational messages telling you you can change the world. And then there's the open kitchen and entertaining area, and stone and chalk staffers who are there to help. I'm Nicholas, I'm the community coordinator here at Stone and Chalk. How common is this, what's going on now? Once a week, once a week, but we do uh, community events three, four times a week. So what you, what's going on now? Can you give us a description? So this is, this is what we call sweet spot. So we encourage all the residents on the floor to come together once a week, get away from their desks, have some pastries, have some tea and coffee, and Stone and Chalk staff use that as an opportunity to um, tell the world, tell Stone and Chalk what's going on this week, uh, what we've just achieved in the past week, and it's a platform for startups to celebrate their small successes. Does it create a good community atmosphere? It does, it does. By hosting these type of um, community events, we really encourage uh, collaboration and um, you know a safe space where startups can come together and share ideas. Um, you know, cultivating community and collaboration um, amongst the different areas of fintech, and also it kind of puts the focus on community and not just work. So you know, you don't have to sit down with your head in your work all day, but you can actually you know, take a breather within the space and enjoy the society that we've created. Lovely. And is it modelled on any particular place in the world? Is this... Uh... It's not really. It's, it's actually inspired by the Level 39 in London, the big um, fintech hub there. They do cookies at three. And whilst uh, our residents sort of expressed that it, they didn't want to have like sweets every day, we, it sort of turned into, organically turned into once a week um, and we, we sort of called it Sweet Spot and became a place, a forum for them to share their achievements. Now you're actually the community... Crusader. Crusader. Yeah, community crusader. So Nicholas is on my team. So Nicholas handles all of like our resident stuff. So because I, I guess I do like... A, across events and corporate partners but Nicholas is my, my man on the ground yeah man on the ground he's my beautiful uh, yeah I'm all the startup's best friend yeah. yeah so if you need to be connected with anybody Nicholas is the person to speak to and that was Annie in case you're wondering beyond the socializing there are presentations from experts in Australia seed rounds are generally 300 to 800 you get some bigger ones it's lunchtime and we're in the open area here at Stone and Chalk, a place where people gather for tea, coffee, a bit of lunch. And there's about 30, 35 people listening to Jeremy Little, who's the CEO of Capital Pitch. And he's talking to them about how to get money for their startup. In the US, they're 500 to a couple of million. Um, there's a massive explosion over there, but Australia's much more conservative. And so once you've got some revenue, and you're going up that curve and you're, and you're looking for growth capital to really scale up fast, that's when you get into the Series A land. Really this is about rapidly learning, rapidly iterating, rapidly evolving. 
you'll keep going until you get it right because you just know that the right answer is there somewhere. You just have to discover it. And that word culture is just so important because it's not about a physical space, but really it's about that community and the community is underpinned by culture. And what do you provide to service the community to make it successful? Well, we do lots of different things. Um, we really lead with our community charter and, and that's very much ingrained in terms of the values uh, that we have as an organisation, but also the values that we're trying to inculcate across our startup residents, our, co our corporate partners, and, and more broadly. And that's very much one of give first and pay it forward. You know, we think collectively, not just as individuals. If you boil it down, startups around the world need the same kind of things. They need funding, they need customers, they need access to talent, they need access to expertise. And we help them with all those four things. We've got Uber connectors, so people that are, you know, really have an enormous network and can open a lot of doors and also subject matter experts of each startup, whether it's law, accounting, you know, go to market, marketing, et cetera, compliance, for example. Um, and that's at a very tactical and community level, a lot of what we provide to the startups. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is help these organisations scale here in Australia and to reduce the time it takes for them to reach that, those scales, scale milestones. You talk about those sorts of organisations. What are they in here in Stone and Chalk? Who, who have you got here? I've actually seen some grey heads uh, amongst the computer screens, which I must say surprised me. So we've got a really diverse mix of, of startups here um, in many dimensions. One, we've had a very uh, positive female bias. So we've been trying to be, uh, I guess, as a, as a hub, as friendly and as attractive to women as possible. We've also got uh, a really nice diversity of, of ages, as you alluded to. I think the average age from memory of our um, startups here is 40. And we've got some guys who are in their 60s who are you know, semi-retired from their profession. Some of them have come out of universities and academia, real gurus in their field. And they're applying their expertise to a startup. And in one case, um, you know, they're actually creating a completely new stochastic math math mathematical um, platform, which is the application of which is effectively wealth management and superannuation in that field of what is currently being coined as robo-advice. Right? Um, from a proposition standpoint, we've got uh, teams that are working in uh, connected devices such as wearables, which include payments, connected car. There's a few teams that are in the hardware space, like creating uh, high-end switches um, for stock exchanges, trading banks and investment banks. We've got teams that are working around data sharing frameworks that have worked through all the legalities around how that happens between organisations. So we've deliberately kept our definition of fintech quite broad because we didn't want to exclude any um, top talent from the support we can give by having it too narrow. Effectively, the way I'm, I'm looking at it, because you know, I get asked quite often, you know, how do you define fintech? Well, actually, I define it as if it's a innovation business model or proposition that is likely to be heavily consumed by financial services, then it's fintech. And that's pretty much the, the bit of a spread of what we have. Next time round on Finzia Podcasts, we'll meet the entrepreneurs working at Stone & Chalk. People like Derek Condell, who's in his 60s and perhaps not quite the face you might expect to meet at a tech startup. I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by about another 10 of us with grey hair and in our mid-60s. Um, <laughs> scary thought, isn't it? I've been in the financial markets since uh, 1970, so that's uh, 45 years. Mm -hmm.